It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, I had a, a friend, I have a friend who retired a few years ago after 30 some years as pastor of a Lutheran church down in Southwest Houston. And he tells the story of when he first came to that church. He was from the Midwest, uh, was pastoring a church in Missouri. He'd never really been south of there. Uh, they brought him in and uh, just for an interview, and it was, it was a day a lot like this. It was in March, but it was a lot like this. Cool, but bright sunshine, beautiful. And uh, they asked him what he thought of Houston. He said, well, y'all sure have good weather around here. And somebody on the committee said, yeah, gets a little humid in the summer. That's what they said, gets a little humid in the summer. He didn't know what he was getting into, but 30 years later, he did know. You know, you can't count on the weather. You can't. You can have a beautiful day today. Tomorrow it could be uh, hailing and, and raining frogs. Who knows? But God, you can count on. The song that we just heard from the choir is a reminder that He is worthy of our praise all the time. All the time. God is good all the time. And He is worthy of our praise forever. And we will praise Him forever. Uh, if you don't enjoy praising God now, you need to practice up because that's going to be your full-time job someday soon. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're in a series about fear. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 27. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. There are Bibles in front of you if you want to use those. Uh, we will put it on the screens, but it helps to have it in front of you. So far in this series, we've talked about how uh, it's not a sin to feel afraid. This is on Easter Sunday when we started the series. It's not a sin to feel afraid. It's not a sin to be worried, to be anxious, to, to have something looming over you that is, that is disturbing your sleep. It doesn't mean you're a weak Christian. It happens to all of us. That's part of life. But the resurrection shows that faith can overcome fear. So the whole key is not whether you feel afraid or not. It's what you do with that fear. It's do you let that fear rule or do you let faith rule in the end? Number two, uh, the second week, we, we learned that the voice of fear sometimes sounds more logical than the voice of faith. And so fear speaks lies to us. When we're afraid, we can believe things that aren't true. And we need to learn to discern those lies that fear is speaking to us so we can avoid those and listen to the voice of faith. And number three, last week, we learned that when we fear God, no other fear can rule over us. We learned what the fear of God is. That's the only fear in the Bible that the Bible commands us to have more of. But when we fear the Lord, then we don't have to be afraid of anything else. Today, we're going to talk about what we can do in times of extreme stress, extreme anxiety, extreme fear, what we can do to calm our spirits, to calm our souls, to get our minds in the right place. And it's one of the last things you would, want to, what you would think to do in such a situation. But let's listen to the words of a man after God's own heart the king of Israel, the greatest king before Jesus, King David, in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in, the shelter, in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. 
And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. In that first verse, Psalm 27.1, is a verse that Christians ought to have memorized. It's a verse that can really steal you in times of doubt and struggle. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. It's the fortress that I run into. Of whom shall I be afraid? What that is, is David saying, since my faith is stronger than my fear, fear can't win. Because I trust in God, nothing can overcome me. And that is the way we should be. David had a lot of things to be afraid of. And he lists them here in this psalm, if, you're, if you pay attention. David, you may think you've got a lot on your plate. David had, let's just look at it, he had evildoers around him. He talks about uh, the people, backstabbers, people who flatter to your face and then turn around and, and stab you in the back, people who are making false accusations. You know, it's tempting for us, you know, ordinary mortals like us, to think it'd be nice to be king even king of a small country, just to have a place where everybody does what you say, where, where you're the man or you're the woman, where you get, to, you get to make those decisions and rule according to your own whims. David's life shows us differently. When you're on top, everybody's out to get you. David dealt with that, this fear. Who's going to turn on me next? He had armies around him. He talks about uh, the, the armies that encamp against me and war arises against me. When you look at the history of Israel, you look at the geography of that land in the Old Testament time, all those countries, Edom, Philistia, Moab, uh, Syria, and Assyria, and all those countries that bordered Israel, they were always at war with Israel at one time or another. And then beyond that, there was always some empire in the north or in the south that was threatening to invade and conquer. That country was always under threat. And so that was another thing that David kept David up at night. And then there was family betrayal. In verse 10, he mentions, my father and my mother have forsaken me. Now we know more about David's life than anybody else in the Old Testament. And we don't see any stories of his parents forsaking him. So scholars think that what David's saying there is, he's, it's a way of saying, I know that someday the people closest to me could turn against me. Even those who share blood with me. In the end, it wasn't his parents that betrayed him. It was his son his son Absalom. Anybody who's had a child can imagine how that must have hurt. David knew it was a possibility, and it indeed happened. So all these fears that David had, how did he manage to rise above them? How did he manage to conquer his fears? Verse 4 gives us the answer. I'll read verse 4 for you again. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. When I hear that verse, I think about the movie Captain Phillips. Some of you may have seen this several years ago. 
True story about the American freighter ship captain who was taken captive by Somali pirates. And there's the famous scene you probably are familiar with, even if you hadn't seen the movie, where the, the lead pirate looks him in the eyes and says, look at me, I'm the captain now. Remember that? I'm in charge. You're no longer in control. I'm the captain now. What David is saying is this one thing is the captain of my heart. This one thing steers my ship. You know, every one of us has a one thing. Every single one of us has one thing that dictates our thoughts, that drives our daydreams, that stokes our fears or calms them, either one, that really dictates our identity. We all have one thing. And for you, maybe it's a person or a group of people. Maybe it's a, a career. Maybe it's a dream of something in the future. Maybe it's a, a hobby or a possession or a social or political cause. But there is something that drives you. That is your one thing. And I have to say, your one thing may be a very good thing, and it very likely is, but if your one thing is anything other than Jesus Christ, it won't overcome fear. It won't help you overcome fear. In fact, quite the opposite. You can look at your fears to tell what your one thing really is. Whatever you're the most afraid of losing, that's your one thing. That's what drives you. That's what you truly worship. But David is fearless because his one thing was to dwell in the house of God all the days of his life. And that's something you can't lose. He was fearless because the one thing that drove everything was the one thing that no one could ever take away from him. Now let me be clear about something. When he says to dwell in the house of God, the house of God at that time was what they called the tabernacle. They hadn't built the temple yet. That would come under David's son, Solomon. But they worshipped in a, a tent a tent that they'd used since the days of Moses to carry and to shield the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where they performed their sacrifices. He wasn't saying, I literally want to live inside that tabernacle because that was impossible. No one could live there. What he was saying was, my one thing, the thing that captains my ship, that drives my heart is, I just want to be in the presence of God. I just want to be with Him. I just want to praise Him. I just want to worship Him. And that's something no one can take away from you. So when David was afraid, what did he do? He praised God. When David was afraid, when he was anxious, when he was worried, when he couldn't sleep, what did he do? He exalted the Lord. He lifted Him up. Now let me clarify a couple of things. I said earlier, if your one thing is anything other than God, you won't be able to overcome fear. I'm not saying that the way to make God your one thing is to diminish everything else. I'm not saying that if, if your children are the most important thing in your life, you just need to love your children less. If your career is the number one thing in your life, you just need to become a half-hearted employee. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying love God more. Worship God more. And an interesting thing will happen. You'll find that you're actually a better parent than if your kids were the most important thing in your life. Because now you're not loving them selfishly. You're loving them sacrificially. You're loving them in the name of God. You'll find out that you're actually better at your job because you're no longer doing it out of a sense of selfish ambition. You're doing it because you want to glorify God. You want to represent Him well in your company. There's a second thing I need to clarify, and that is I'm sure there are people, because I've known a lot of Christians like this, who would say, Jeff, I'm just, I'm not like David. I, I believe in Jesus. I, I've given Him my heart. But frankly, worship is not my thing. I find it boring. 
I can't, I can't really keep my mind focused when I read the Bible or when I sit in church or, or when I try to sing. It just, I'm just not there. We have this idea that there are some people who are religiously inclined and other people who aren't. And if you're not, you just sort of have to suffer through church. But don't ask me to enjoy it. Don't ask me to make that my one thing. Gosh, if that's my one thing, ah, my life's going to be terrible. Let me tell you a story, okay? That's related. Just work with me. Carrie and I uh, were married by uh, her former youth minister. There's a guy who was very special to her and became very special to me. About a year before our wedding, he went to get a physical from his doctor. He'd never done this before. He's in his probably mid to late 30s. First time he'd ever gone and just said, check me out, doc. I want to see how I'm doing. The doctor comes back and he says, listen, what did all your numbers. I got to be honest with you. If you don't make some real changes right now, you're not going to live to see your kids grow up. And this was not the kind of doctor that was prone to shock, shock value, right? To, to overstating things. And so uh, Carrie's former youth minister, our friend, he did make real changes and, you know, started instead of getting the double cheeseburger with fries and a large Coke, he started getting some healthier foods. And instead of every time he was off playing golf, he started playing some sports that actually got his heart rate up, that got him sweating, that got him into better cardiovascular shape. And by the time we were married a year later, he'd lost so much weight, his, his suit didn't fit right anymore. <laughs> I remember my grandma uh, saying, oh, that poor preacher, he can't afford a good suit. And I said, well, grandma, I think the church pays him well. He's just lost a lot of weight. But I saw him about a year ago. He's obviously 30 years older now. So he looks very different, but he still looks like he's in good shape. And one thing I've learned about people who've made that kind of radical change in their lifestyle is at first you hate it. You hate doing that stuff. You hate making those changes, but then you start to realize, you know, healthy food tastes good too. I kind of like the way this tastes. And, you know, I, I enjoy working up a good sweat and I sure enjoy the way it makes me feel. And I think it's the same with the new habits we form when we decide, I need to know the Lord. I've, I've wandered far from Him long enough. I've, I've been a half-hearted nominal believer long enough, just suffering through the occasional worship service. It's time for me to get to know Him. When you form those new habits, at first it's hard. At first it's awkward. At first it doesn't seem to work. And then suddenly something clicks. and There's nothing you'd rather do than be in His presence. Nothing you'd rather do than sing His praise. What new habits am I talking about? David mentions three in this, especially in verse 4, but I want to go through them real quick. Using his words, the first one is to gaze upon His beauty. See, you form new habits when you get properly motivated, and the first one is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, which is a weird thing to say. It sounds odd to our ears because it sounds like something that a man would say about a woman he's in love with, and that's actually intentional. Because when you fall in love with someone, what do you want more than anything else? You want to be with them. Phone calls won't work. Texts aren't enough. I mean, even today you can get on a computer and see their face on the opposite end of that screen. That's not enough. You want to be with them. A man who's in love will drive any distance. He'll get up early. He'll stay up late, whatever it takes to be with her. I want you to imagine, in fact, if you were a single man and the person you trusted the most in the world, the friend who had never steered you wrong came to you and said, I found the perfect woman for you. She is perfect for you in every way. And by the, by the way, I've talked to her. I've told her all about you. She thinks you sound great too. And if you were to say, well, when can we meet? 
Imagine him saying, meat? No, that'd ruin everything. No, 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 no. I'll just tell you all about her. And I'm good at description. I will tell you everything I know about her. And, and, and you'll just enjoy getting to know her through me. No, that's not the way it works. You can't fall in love with someone from a distance. You can't fall in love with someone who you never meet. If you do, it's not love. I'll tell you that. Now, if you convince that friend to let you meet this woman, it might be awkward at first, wouldn't it? But the more times you met with her, the more you'd see everything about her that your friend had described, everything about her that was what you needed in your life. See, a lot of us as Christians, we have that kind of a relationship with God. We come maybe once a week to a room like this, and we sit and we listen to a guy talk about how good God is, and that's our experience of the Lord. We never gaze upon His beauty. We hear a description of it, but even if your preacher is very skilled, you can't fall in love with a God you only hear described. You have to get into His presence. You have to prioritize time with Him. For me, that means waking up earlier than I want to. There's a rare morning when my alarm goes off that I don't go, oh, I wish I had 15 more minutes. And yet, every time I make sure I get up, every time I make sure I don't hit snooze, and I spend time in His presence, my day is better because I've started the day in the right way. Spend time with Him. And yes, at first it will be awkward. At first you'll think, okay, I've read a whole chapter of the Bible. I have no idea what I just read. And yet, the more you do it, the more two things will happen. First, you'll love Him so much you'll be hungry for more. You'll discover, all of a sudden, you want that time in the morning. And on those days when you skip that time, you miss it. It's like forgetting to brush your teeth. Or, you know, when you get to work and you realize you forgot to put on deodorant and you're just like, ugh. That's what happens when you get into the pattern of prioritizing time with God and for whatever reason, you skip it one day. The day just isn't right. You'll discover that. The second thing you'll discover is you're just not as afraid as you used to be. Don't get me wrong. Life is still scary. And there are still those crisis moments where you're going to need to call upon Him, but you, you're not as afraid as you used to be. As the old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Gaze upon His beauty. That's the first habit to form. The second one is inquire in His temple. The word inquire, your Bible might say seek, depending on what translation you have. It literally means to discover His will. It doesn't just mean uh, to, to learn new things. It, it literally means to learn what does God want from me. The second new habit I want you to form in accordance with Psalm 27 is don't just show up to church. Don't just read your Bible. Don't just spend time with God, but actually come expectantly. Pray something like this. You don't have to use these exact words, but pray something like this. Every time you open your Bible, every time you come into church, every time you spend time with God, pray something like this. Lord, show me what you want me to do, how you want me to change, who you want me to reach out to. Show me what you want me to do, Lord, how you want me to change, who you want me to reach out to, because it's not worship unless you walk away changed in some way. Worship is not just running through a list of songs and listening to a sermon and staying awake. Man, if you stay awake, good for you, but that's not worship. Worship is surrender. 
It's when you walk out and you say, I now know something different I can do this week. Something I can change. Some way I can serve him better. Some way I can be more the person he's called me to be. You might say, well, what does that have to do with fear, Jeff? If you pay attention to yourself, if you're self-honest, right? If you're honest with yourself, you'll know that when we're afraid, all we're thinking of is ourselves. All we're thinking of is our problem. When you're afraid, you feel like no one has ever suffered like I've suffered. No one has ever dealt with the kinds of things I'm dealing with now. Now, your rational mind, you know, there are people out there going through far worse, and yet in your heart, you feel like nobody knows the trouble I've seen, right? Self-pity is the natural state of somebody who's afraid. Just to to sit there and and wallow in your own self-pity, it is a comforting thing to think, I am suffering in in a unique way, but it's a terrible place to be. But what happens when you start inquiring in the temple of God? You start asking, Lord, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to reach out to? How do you want me to change? What you're doing is you're taking your mind off of your problems. You're placing them on the people around you. Lord, who do you want me to reach out to? You're placing them on the the aspects of your character that God is currently working on. Lord, how do you want me to change? You're putting your mind on the work of God in the world. Things he's doing in this church or in your community. Lord, I see you working. How do you want me to join you? What do you want me to do? Suddenly you're not thinking about your problems anymore. And believe it or not, your problems will be just fine with you leaving them alone. Inquire in his temple. Seek the will of God. And you'll overcome your fear. And then number three, sing with joy. David talks about this. He talks about shouting. He talks about singing. It's all with joy. You know, there's a passage in 1 Chronicles that I want to share with you. 1 Chronicles 6, 31. Here's the thing. If, you've, if you read through the Bible, and I hope you do, I hope you've at least read through the whole Bible once, but some parts are easier than others. That's why I tell people who've never read the Bible before, please do not start in Genesis. That's not the place to start. Start in Matthew Get used to the language, get used to the way God talks and thinks, and then you can start, and then you can go back to those older books that are a little tougher. But when you get to First Chronicles, it's a great book. There's some great stories, but it starts with seven or eight chapters of just lists of names. And I'll admit to you, that's not the most exciting reading. But there's some gems in there, and this is one. First Chronicles 6.31 says, These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. Now, what is that about? See, Israelite worship up to that time had been all about, we go to the tabernacle, we watch the priest offer the sacrifices, we praise God. We bring our best bull, our best goat, our best whatever animal we have, we offer it to the Lord. That is our worship. David brought something new into Israelite worship. He created, for lack of a better term, he created a choir. David was the first choir director, you might say. He, he, he cut off part of the, the, the Levites. The, he called part of the Levitical tribe, the tribe that was from which the priests came. He said, okay, you Levites over here, you're gifted in singing. I want you to be a choir. I want you to lead us in song whenever the, the nation of Israel gathers together. I want you to teach us these songs about the Lord. One of the people in the list after 1 Chronicles 6.31 is a guy named Asaph. You may know that name if you've read the Psalms. David wrote more Psalms than anybody, but second most was Asaph. He was one of these Levitical singers. Now, why did David do this? David was a man of war. He was a, he was a, a tough guy. 
He was a king. He had a lot on his plate, and yet he was also a musician. As a musician, David knew the power of music. He knew the power of this art form. You know, there's a reason why when you go to shop in October, they're already playing Christmas carols. You understand what they're doing, right? They're trying to stir up a particular emotion in you, this nostalgia, this, this sense of family bonding, and you'll say, well, you know, I should buy my nephew this. I should buy my wife that. I should buy my mom this thing over here. This is why uh, athletes, before a big game, they've got their earbuds in their ears. They're, they're blasting music to get themselves hyped up. This is, this is why if you love a, a good action movie or war movie, you can probably hum the tune of it right now. If I named the movie and it was one of your favorites, you could probably hum it. I'm not going to do that. That's not what we're here for. Music stirs emotion. It gets us excited. But not just that. Music also drives memory. All right, I, I'm, I'm going to say something that, that hurts my feelings, but I'm going to say it anyway, and that is probably none of you will remember anything I said in about four or five hours. When you come back for the family gathering this evening, you're going to be like, hey, that was a good sermon today. I don't know what you said, but that was a good sermon. And, yeah, that's okay, because I won't remember much that I said either. But you still remember songs that you danced to when you were a teenager. You still remember songs that you learned in vacation Bible school when you were four or five years old. If there's a song that was your favorite song and you haven't heard it in 30 years, if I played it right now, you could sing along to every lyric. Why? Because when you put stuff to, to, to music, you can remember it. Far, far better than you can remember three points in a poem. Okay? David knew the power of music. And, and so now I've got to say something. I've got to say something that... Uh, some of you are going to think I'm picking on you, but before you think that, just understand, when we're singing, I've got my back turned. I don't know who's singing and who's not, so I'm not picking on anybody in particular, all right? And if, if the person next to you doesn't sing when we sing, this is not your time to elbow them. They're hearing the message, all right? You don't, I don't need your help. But every church I've ever been in, there's always a little group of people, most of them men, who just don't sing. Maybe because... Uh, they don't like the particular kind of song we're singing, maybe because they don't think they're good singers, maybe because they don't think it's manly to sing, although David's more man than anybody in this room, and he was a musician. Heck, he played the harp. I mean, that's... <laughs> good grief, that's not even a manly instrument, but... And what I'm saying to you is, you're not hurt. If you're, if you're sitting there with your arms folded while the rest of us are singing, you're not hurting us, but you're hurting yourself. You're missing something. Someday you're going to need those songs. You're going to need to know how to, how to sing them. When, when the storm is raging and you need some kind of way to get out of the pit you're in, this pit of despair and anguish and fear, to be able to just recall those songs that you've sung. You won't recall the point of a sermon, probably, unless the Holy Spirit does some miraculous intervention. But if you've been singing the songs of the Lord, those songs will come back to you and you will sing them. Let me tell you what happens when that happens. Uh, there's a great story. One of my favorite story, favorite little known stories in the Bible. There were three armies. Three separate nations had banded together to invade Israel. The king at the time was a man named Jehoshaphat, who fortunately was a good and a godly king. They didn't always have good kings back then. 
Jehaziel was a, a, a singer among the Levitical singers. He was a direct descendant of Asaph. Jehaziel went to Jehoshaphat and he said, O king, I got news for you. And this is what he says, 2 Chronicles 20, 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. You don't need to fight. God will fight them for you. So here's what Jehoshaphat did. He sent out his men. He sent them to the battlefield but they didn't have swords and they didn't have arrows and they didn't have spears. Instead, he took those Levitical singers and he put them in the front lines and they marched into battle singing praise to God. And when they got there, you know what they found? They found that those three armies had gotten into a fight the night before with each other and had slaughtered each other. They found nothing but dead bodies. Now, I'm not saying that when you sing, your problems go away because it wasn't the songs of the people of God that killed those men. God did that. He would have done that whether they sang or not. I'm saying Jehoshaphat had a good idea. He said, you know, let's send our, our choir to battle so it'll remind the people who's about to win the victory. So that when they're afraid, they'll think, oh yeah, I remember that song. I remember what God did down in that valley when those three armies came against us. The joy you feel when you sing praise to God can overcome any fear because it reminds you that God is stronger than whatever you're afraid of. So here's what it comes down to. Here's the good news. We can have what David only dreamed of. He wanted to live in the house of the Lord all his days, but he, he couldn't. The, the tabernacle was not a place where you could dwell. But every Christmas... We quote or we hear or we see on our Christmas cards, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's talking about the incarnation of Jesus, the birth of our Lord. You know, that term dwelt is literally the word tabernacled. David couldn't live in the tabernacle. He had to go to a tent to offer a sacrifice. He'd go and offer a sacrifice and then go home. But Jesus came and built his tent here among us. He became our sacrifice. He didn't offer a sacrifice. He became our once and for all sacrifice for sin. David knew his sin separated him from God, but because of Jesus, nothing separates us from our Father. So if you're hungry for something more, if you're tired of being afraid, make Him your one thing. Prioritize time with Him every day. Seek to do His will. Sing for joy. Try those new habits and it'll change your life.